Support for today's show comes from Deloitte. If your company is like most, your future depends in part on technology. Yes, that means choosing the right technology and adopting it quickly. But that isn't enough. To gain advantage, your technology needs to be as outcome-focused as you. That means helping your people be more efficient and more inventive, reducing cost and creating revenue streams, growing your customer base and building trust. Deloitte combines world-class business knowledge with a full command of technology to help clients do more than choose cloud or adopt AI. They help them create advantage from it. Read case studies at Deloitte.com slash US slash engineering advantage. Support for this podcast comes from another podcast. The world's most valuable resource, it's actually data. Our data, based on our behaviors, is frequently being gathered, tracked, stored, and sold. So what does this mean for us? Join host Rafi Krikorian for season two of Technically Optimistic, where he'll take you on a deep dive into how our data is being used and what we can do about it. From social media feeds to foundational human rights, Krikorian leads us into territories both familiar and unexpected, with openness and genuine curiosity. New episodes of Technically Optimistic drop every Wednesday. Listen now, wherever you get your podcasts. Hello, and welcome to Decoder. I'm Neil Patel, editor-in-chief of The Verge, and Decoder is my show about big ideas and other problems. Today, I'm talking to John Hankey, the CEO of Niantic. Niantic is a fascinating company. It makes the wildly popular Pokemon Go mobile game in partnership with Nintendo and the Pokemon Company. But John actually started the whole thing as a skunkworks project when he was a Google Maps executive and spun it out of Google. Pokemon Go and its predecessor Ingress are now the largest and most successful augmented reality games in the industry, which means John has kind of always been at the forefront of what we started calling the metaverse, digital worlds that interact with the real world. Lots of companies are chasing metaverse hype. Mark Zuckerberg just renamed all of Facebook Meta to underline his shift in focus. We just had Meta CTO Andrew Bosworth on Decoder to talk about it, actually. But John's been at it for a while. So I wanted to talk about the reality instead of the hype. Is the technology for all of this ready? What are the innovations that need to happen to enable some of these dreams? And how do you solve the problem of people walking around in headsets, experiencing wildly different realities from one another? This is definitely the episode of Decoder where we coin the phrase, marketplace of realities. It's a ride. Some quick notes before we start. The whole industry is chasing these ideas, but it's all early, it's all all over the place. So here's the state of things. Niantic has an AR glasses reference design it made with Qualcomm. Meta, formerly known as Facebook, makes the Meta Quest 2 VR headset. That's the industry's most successful VR product. Microsoft makes the HoloLens 2 which is an augmented reality headset largely geared towards business and industrial use. The U.S. military just ordered 120,000 HoloLens units. Snap has prototype AR glasses that our own Alex Heath just previewed on The Verge. They're probably years out from shipping. Apple has been openly chasing AR for years. There's AR features on the iPhone and a flood of rumors about a headset in 2022. There's a company called Magic Leap that's been raising huge gobs of money for years. I encourage you to fall down that rabbit hole. It is just a wild tale. And of course, Google did Google Glass in 2013, but it was a disaster and Google is now effectively nowhere. Lastly, you're going to hear John and I talk about waveguides a lot. That's the main kind of display used in AR glasses. And I'm very curious if that's going to be the winner or if something else needs to happen. Okay, John Henke, CEO of Niantic. Here we go. John Hankey, you are the founder and CEO of Niantic, which is the maker of Pokemon Go. Welcome to Decoder. Thanks, Neilai. Great to be here. I'm excited to talk to you. There's a lot of big ideas about the metaverse to unpack, but I want to start at the very beginning. What is Niantic? What is Niantic? Um, Well, that's a great question. Niantic's a company that's building some, I think, some really fun, innovative entertainment products, starting with Pokemon Go, but... 
following that on with Pikmin Bloom and of course Ingress where we all started and lots of others in development, but also importantly building a platform so other people can build games and other things other than games that connect us as people with the real world and with other people in real life. So just to make that specific, I feel nuts describing to people what Pokemon Go is because it is a phenomenon. But it, it, Pokemon Go is a game you play on your phone and you, you walk around the real world and you try to catch Pokemon in the real world that appear on your phone in various places. And it's obviously like a massive multiplayer game. Is that a fair description of all of your products or is that more narrow to Pokemon Go? I think it's fair. Look, our overall goal there is to turn the world into a game board, to turn the the world itself into a more magical and fun place. And Pokemon Go, I think, is a great example of that and lets all of us who love Pokemon lead that fantasy of Pokemon existing out in the world and finding and catching them and trading them and battling with them and all that. There's a little bit of an interesting backstory here. You started at Google and Niantic was part of Google. Ingress is the first game which is still running, which is very popular, and that turned into a company. Just just describe that process. Yeah, I mean, I worked on maps for a long time. So I uh, co-founded a company called Keyhole, which was acquired by Google, which was the sort of foundation for uh, Google Earth and parts of Google Maps. And uh, yeah, I, I ran that group and worked on maps for a long time at Google. And then we started Niantic Labs as a little skunk works, really just I don't know, three of us uh, sort of peeled off and said, we've got this amazing map of the world, all this great infrastructure, mobile phones, other mobile devices coming, wearable devices coming. Seems really interesting. What kinds of apps can we build for that future? And we started experimenting. And so Ingress is, was the first game. It is still ongoing. It's like an underground massive success. I don't know how else to describe it. It's once you see it, it's everywhere, but it's not like it's not Pokemon. It's not some mainstream huge success in that way. Describe what Ingress is. Yeah, I would call it our underground uh, cult success. Our first product out of the gate at Niantic Labs was actually Field Trip, which was not a game. It was about learning about the world, cool places to go, history, artwork that you might see in public spaces, really designed to be the app that would sort of be the precursor to what you might have on smart glasses someday when you're walking around and you want your device to inform you about the world around you. And then our second uh, product was Ingress. And Ingress is that thing that turns the world into a game board. In the case of Ingress, it's two teams battling against one another to control the world, kind of a la risk, but with a kind of sci-fi J.J. Abrams <laughs> bent around portals, which are public artwork and historic places and other things in the world that you interact with them. And take them over and then the other team kind of does the same thing. Uh, but yeah, it's a global MMO. So it's very collaborative teams formed around the world across boundaries of countries and ethnicity and language. And so Russians and Koreans and Israelis and Japanese and Americans and Argentinians to this day are still battling to control the world in ingress. And I do it daily on my morning walk as well. So I'm part of that, <laughs> part of that <laughs> struggle great. for control of the world. <laughs> <laughs> I love it. Um, You've got some new features you're adding to both Ingress and Pokemon Go next year. They're kind of around messaging and communication. Yeah, social has always been a core part of our products. And for us, that means helping people get together in real life and spend time together with friends and, and family in real life. So we are working on a couple of things. One is a feature that's coming in Pokemon Go that's about giving you a way to share a postcard of cool places that you've visited in the real world with your friends in the game. The other thing that we're doing is a little bigger and broader in nature, and that is a cross-game social identity. And you're starting to see that in Ingress as the first place that that's showing up. Um, it is a way for you to communicate, to plan activities with other people, like planning meetups is a core part of what people do in Ingress and other games like Pokemon Go, planning for raids. In Ingress, they uh, farm portals together. Um, so it gives people a way to find friends easily who are in their area and meet them, talk with them, talk about the game, share things about the game, but importantly, plan opportunities to play together in real life. So that kind of core social identity and set of social services is something that we see as a fundamental part of our games and our platform um, in the future and just coming out. So those are some of the individual games, but uh, the company as a whole, can you describe the process of spinning out of Google and becoming your own standalone company? Uh, six months of 
pain and torture with piles <laughs> of documents and <laughs> good goodwill on all sides, but incredibly painful to separate intellectual property and people, you know, out of a company like that. Um, we had started it with the idea that we might spin out at some point because we knew that we were doing something which was a little orthogonal to kind of what Google was interested in and doing at the time. So we said, hey, we want to try this. Larry was supportive. And so we had constructed some paperwork around the, the group that said, well, here's some parameters. If you want to spin it out in the future, it's, it's a possibility. So that cracked the door and we sort of had to push on it for a while to make that happen. But at the end of the day, the Pokemon company and Nintendo uh, financed us along with a, a venture capitalist and some angel investors and allowed us to uh, stand up, you know, Niantic as, a, as an independent company. When was that? How long ago was that? That was in 2015, October 2015. And how many people is Niantic now? How, how big have you become? We are around 800 people today. And, you know, we were around 30 when we peeled off of Google. Yeah. Wow. And how is that structured? How, how does the company work? We have um, game studios, so we have several internal game teams. We also have producers that work with external game teams. So that's sort of the gaming side of the business. Niantic Studios is how I think about it. And then we have the platform, uh, recently officially launched externally as a Niantic Lightship platform. And that's taking all the tech that we created and the data that we created to power the experiences that we launched and making those available to third-party devs. Super excited about that. We We've worked with third-party devs, you know, for the past several years, but this makes it a website you can go to, enter your information, and get right into it, get access to those APIs and tutorials and how-tos and all that. So a big step forward for the company. So that's kind of the other the other half. And that's really kind of the news here and what we need to dig into. But just foundationally, how many people, what's the split? How many people work on Pokemon Go versus Lightship, the platform? Well, if you look across all of games and all of platform, which includes all the research work that we are doing on AR and mapping, it's about 50-50 in terms of our product and engineering resources. Of course, we have operations and marketing and other functions, HR, that support everybody. And then I'm assuming the revenue is mostly Pokemon stuff and then the idea is to grow it with the with the platform? Yeah, grow it with our portfolio of games. We have about a dozen products in development. We just launched Pikmin Bloom, and we've got uh, several that I'm very excited about. They'll be coming out in the next year or two, uh, things that we've been working on for the past two or three years. So that's the short-term sort of revenue growth story with a platform. We're really focused on engaging developers and you know just sort of growing the number of people working on that platform first. I think revenue is not really the primary focus of that part of the business at the moment. The last of what I think of is the coder questions about decisions. How do you make decisions, right? You, you obviously, you were a startup founder, then you were inside a big company, then you had a renegade project inside a big company, then you were a startup founder again. What's your decision-making framework? That's a great question. I'm pretty methodical. People would work with me, would tell me I'm pretty methodical. I do like to get all the data on the table. I like to hear from multiple people, you know, if it's a decision that I'm going to make, you know, obviously the idea is to delegate and have other people making uh, important decisions as well. But if it's coming to me, I like to hear from a variety of people. We actually have an internal value around inclusivity and just trying to create a safe space for everybody to kind of come forward and speak their mind and really argue forcefully for what they want to do. But at the end of the day, we have a disagree but commit culture. So that means that if we don't get to consensus, which I think we ought to get to consensus maybe 70% of the time, uh, but if we don't get there, then I will make a decision you know, if it's me or somebody else in the company would make a decision. And we expect, you know, at that point, everybody, even if you've disagreed strongly or put forward, you know, other points of view to really align behind that and for everyone to go commit and execute as if it were their own. I think that's really important. But the decision-making process itself is about really encouraging people to come forward with data to support, you know, their points of view so that we can make the best call. Put this into practice for me. You had a Harry Potter game that I think you decided to sunset. How mm -hmm. did that decision work? Yeah, we are sunsetting it. Uh, we're going out in style with that game with a ton of great uh, content. All of the stars of the Harry Potter world are making an appearance, and we're trying to really bring that to a fun close in January. It is something that we looked at, and the game would be probably considered a success by other companies in the space, but it didn't have the growth opportunity that you know we felt like it needed if it was going to consume the mental time and space of some of our best people. So, you know, we did deliberate uh, about that for a while. And ultimately, you know, I talked to the board about that. We 
looked at all the numbers internally about what we thought the game could do, what changes we thought we could make. But at the end of the day, we felt like that the people would be best invested in other things. And yeah, came to the conclusion to sunset it. And then we got to work thinking about the best way to do that, a way that would be best for all the players that were enjoying the game and had committed time and energy into the game and tried to do it in a fresh kind of fun way. What was the best opposite argument you heard to keep it going? That they're passionate, committed fans to the game who don't want it to end and will keep playing and that it can be a success within certain parameters that, you know, we could have imagined continuing to grow it from where it was and investing in it and building on those core fans. You know, it was tempting. We went down that road for a while in terms of trying to do some things. Um, Also kind of a unique project in that it was a joint effort with Warner Brothers Gaming Studio. So we were building the game together with them. You know, that ultimately was another factor in deciding to not go down that road because, you know, if you sort of look, you've been around the tech industry for a long time, anytime (laughs) two companies are trying to do something (laughs) in a cooperative way, it's just harder. I mean, I'm sure you see that even inside your own organization, trying to make decisions, you know, you get more and more people around the table, it becomes harder and harder to sort of move quickly. And yeah, we just didn't think we're going to be able to, to get it done. When you made that decision, was it an email? Was it a Slack message? How did you deliver the words, we're going to sunset the game, start making a plan? Um, yeah, I'm trying to remember exactly. It was something that we talked about and deliberated in various meetings of various forms over a long period of time. When we ultimately decided to do that, it was something where I remember having a conversation with a team about that to express you know, my gratitude for everything that people on the team had done and to explain the context for the decision so ultimately, it was delivered in, I think that was, I don't it was that was after we were in COVID, it was delivered over a Zoom call, but as in person as we could get. Obviously, the people, people are our greatest resource, and people pour their heart and soul into these projects. So, you know, my biggest concern there, the biggest thing I was focused on was making sure that those people really felt appreciated for the great work that, that they had done, you know, games are like movies or Books or television shows, you know, not all of them are going to have the success that you would want them to have. And we have to, you know, put our best effort out there and our best creative effort out there. And, you know, some are some are not going to make it. And that's true of some of the things that we'll launch in the future as well. And it's just sort of part of the part of the nature of the business. We need to take a quick break. But when we come back, John and I talk metaverse and why he's betting on augmented reality rather than virtual reality. Support for Decoder comes from Mint Mobile. Imagine you're at a very fancy, expensive restaurant. And as you're browsing the menu, wondering how you'll afford anything on it, you notice the filet mignon is a mere $10. At first you think jackpot, but then you immediately think, wait, what's the catch? Now what do suspiciously cheap steaks have to do with your cell phone bill? Well, we're used to seeing quote unquote great deals from overpriced wireless providers and also thinking, what's the catch? But with Mint Mobile, there is no catch. For a limited time, their wireless plans are just $15 a month when you purchase a three-month plan. You can get this new customer offer and your new three-month unlimited wireless plan for just $15 a month. Go to mintmobile.com slash decoder. That's mintmobile.com slash decoder. Cut your wireless bill to $15 a month at mintmobile.com slash decoder. $45 upfront payment required, equivalent to $15 a month. New customers on first three-month plan only. Speed slower above 40 gigabytes on an unlimited plan. Additional taxes, fees, and restrictions apply. See Mint Mobile for details. This episode is brought to you by State Farm. You've heard it before. Like a good neighbor, State Farm is there. But it's more than just a tagline. Because State Farm agents are small business owners themselves who live and work in your community. And if you're in the market for small business insurance, who better to work with than an agent who understands what it takes? State Farm agents can help you create a personalized insurance plan that fits your small business needs and budget. Talk to your local State Farm agent today about small business insurance. Like a good neighbor, State Farm is there. Before the break, John and I were talking about the decisions he's made at Niantic, but I was curious about the industry at large. Let's talk about the next big set of decisions I think the entire industry is facing. Do you think you're in the metaverse business? 
You know, I'm not responsible for introducing the word metaverse into this whole public conversation. <laughs> okay, I just want to—I just want to say that I one person's very responsible for that. <laughs> Don't blame me for it, but you know, I did feel the need to speak up and talk about what the metaverse is or can be once that conversation got started because I did feel like a lot of people were maybe a little bit overly influenced by the time that we have all kind of endured, you know, during COVID, which is to say, spending a lot of time at home, a lot of time on Zoom. Uh, watch my kids go to school remote or my one kid who's still at home go to school remote, watched him spend a ton of time on Roblox, binged on Netflix, got delivery food, the whole thing, right? <laughs> and coming out of that, you know, a lot of these products that saw a big lift from COVID. I mean, let's be honest, you know, people spending a ton more time of their sort of discretionary time and energy in these worlds. I kind of feel like that sort of fed a level of I don't know, kind of frenzy around this is the future. We're all gonna live in these 3D worlds and I just don't think that's how it's going to play out. I think the trajectory of technology over the past 50 years has been towards mobility and ubiquity and what Mark Weiss would call a sort of ubiquitous computing vision, one of the Xerox Parks pioneers in that area. And so we kind of took a detour during COVID is my, is my personal opinion. And um, yeah, I mean, I'm a huge sci-fi fan too. So, you know, Red Neil Stevenson back <laughs> when we founded Keyhole and William Gibson and the whole array of writers still I'm in deep into the latest Neil Stevenson novel at right now, actually. And, you know, we those, those of us who've read the books to the end know how they end. And I just wanted <laughs> to say, like, that's a horrible vision for the future. You know, one where the world has just, you know, kind of completely gone the wrong way and people have to escape to these virtual realities. So I don't think it's how things are going to play out. I don't want it to be how things will play out. And I'm kind of a techno-optimist in the sense that I do think tech, AR, a real-world version of that metaverse, if you will, that's about getting people outside and active and learning about their city, state, town, hanging out with other people, family members, like tech can do that. And it can help bring us back together and help us get reconnected with our communities and the places that we live. All the things that we need to do to kind of get some of the problems, frankly, here in the US and probably in other countries around the world to get some things fixed and to build a future that we will feel good about passing on to our, to our kids and to the next generation. I always think it's funny that Neil Stevenson comes up a lot Ready Player One comes up a lot. Yeah. And it's funny talking about the end of the book. The resolution of that book and that movie, sorry, spoiler alert, it's years <laughs> later, but spoiler alert, the resolution is that they turn it off. Yeah. Like that's literally like the last thing they do is like hit the button and turn it off. Yeah, And I'm always like, is that, that's what you want? So uh, Niantic builds a lot of basically augmented reality products, right? You have a phone right now. You point the phone at the real world. The digital world is layered over that world, that is where you're pointed. AR right now is very much a, a phone product. The other vision of this is like a totally virtual reality. And I think the best expression of that is Mark Zuckerberg, the person who's introduced the word metaverse the most so far. He changed the name of the company to Meta. He's got the the Quest 2, which is maybe the preeminent VR headset. It's, it's a great product. But that's about being in the headset and being in a totally virtual world. You can extend that to other kinds of games like Fortnite or Minecraft or Roblox or whatever. Do you see a split there or do you see AR and VR converging in some way? Well, there's a lot of shared stuff there, right? I mean, our Lightship platform is about infrastructure that can allow millions of people to share state. In our games, that's where you are, what you're interacting with in the game world, which is overlaid on the physical world. You can message back and forth to one another. I can get updates whenever you change something in the world. Similar technologies needed for sort of the VR version of the metaverse. Likewise, some of the tech for like AR glasses and VR glasses, you know, there's a lot of overlap there in terms of a head-worn device and you got to mentorize a bunch of stuff. You have to do 3D, you have to have sensors that track where your head's pointed and various things like that. So there's a lot of overlap, but the end state for them is very different. Yes. I mean, one is a sedentary thing where, you know, you're going to like slip into this virtual world. You are going to be cut off physically from people who are in your vicinity. So you think about, you know, you're at home on the couch with your significant other or other, you know, family members. You know, are you, you know, are you going to really want to be in VR? Are you going to have, you know, <laughs> uh, the four of you lined up there all in your headsets? You know, maybe you have an avatar representation of other people, but it's, you know, fundamentally, I think a poor substitute for the real, real human-to-human -human interaction. So AR is about getting out of your way as much as possible with the technology, 
Uh, if it's a wearable device like a watch, if it's something in your ear, if it's uh, eyeglasses, it's about giving you information, maybe to help you have fun and play a game, go on a secret treasure hunt out in the world, find Pokemon, maybe just to tell you how to get there, show you how to get there, paint arrows on the ground showing you where the subway is. Maybe it's to show you the menu of the restaurant you're standing in front of before you walk through the door. Uh, maybe you tap on a virtual UI to uh, make a reservation or check into the airport. It's about being helpful, but allowing you to primarily exist in the world as like a full-blown evolved human being that's using all your senses, enjoying being out in that environment and, and probably hanging out with other people in that environment, um, but just trying to make that better and not replace it. Making that better, not cutting you off and replacing it. That's the big distinction. So let me, let me push on that a little bit. We had Chris Milk on Decoder earlier this year. He runs Within, a company that makes Supernatural. It's a VR exercise app. They were just bought by Meta, formerly Facebook, for mm-hmm. uh, $500 million, reportedly. That's a VR app. You put it on your head. You can't see the world around you. It is completely about your body. It's like one of the killer apps for this headset is working out in VR. It's not isolating you from your body or taking you out of your body in that way. Then right next to that is Meta's vision. A lot of what they're doing now is showing you an avatar. You're going to be in space with other avatars. The avatars don't have legs, which is very confusing. Uh, <laughs> but you're going to be in space with other avatars, and that's going to give you a sense of, uh, I think, what Zuckerberg calls embodiment. Right? You're going to you're going to feel physically present with other people. Your form is not present with other people, but you feel that way because of the technology. Isn't that kind of related to what you're talking about with AR? Right? Like. It's another world you can exist in where you're spending time with friends and you're catching a set of three-dimensional cues. Or in the case of Supernatural, you're like hyper aware of your body. Like there's just there's a tension there between, I think, what AR promises, which is to put you in reality but better, and where VR is kind of going, which is a little less coherent, but still is about being present. I will definitely step up to the mic and take the invitation to to argue the other side of that one. <laughs> sure, and yeah. Supernatural, I think the product you're talking about, really cool product, a lot of respect for the creators. But I, you know, I'm not talking about you. When I say isolation, I'm not talking about mm-hmm. you and your body. I'm talking about you from other people and from the physical world. So yeah. as cool as that experience is, and I think it's useful, look, Peloton's useful. Immersing yourself in like a home theater experience is fun. Like there's a place <laughs> for those kinds of experiences, right? But it does cut you off. There's just no question about it from your normal way of interacting with the world and with other human beings. So I would argue strongly that a visual representation of an avatar, even if it's like a really photorealistic avatar, and we've seen some examples of these things called codec avatars and, and others where it gets like super realistic, like your body senses the world and senses other people in a very broadband way. Eyes, ears. When human beings are together over time, your heartbeats will synchronize. The frequency of your brainwaves will actually synchronize. There's a ton of stuff going on there in terms of how we relate to other people that's uh, evolutionary in its uh, origins that allow us to learn how to trust people, to bond with people, to build relationships with people. It was integral, obviously, to our survival, you know, going back, (laughs) you know, in the past. So we're evolved. We are built for interacting with people in the real world. And it is a deep, deep thing that is through, you know, throughout our physiology and how our minds and bodies work. So to think that we can just sort of put two uh, OLED displays in front of our eyes and believe that we're replicating all that comes from those real interactions is just isn't true, you know? And so it is sipping through a soda straw in terms of the bandwidth with which you're going to perceive the environment or perceive other people. There's a place for it. You and I are talking over remotely at the moment. You know, it's a miracle that people around the world can connect, but it doesn't, it shouldn't, shouldn't replace, you know, our desire to be together with people physically. I think it's just core to our human nature and, and it's fundamental to our being happy. It actually triggers endorphins when you uh, have face-to-face interactions with other human beings. I really think it's about finding peace of mind and being happy and, you know, kind of being true to what we're evolved to, to need, you know, in our, in our lives. So you're obviously making a much bigger bet on AR for all of those reasons. AR seems like it has a much longer technology pathway than VR. Like you can just buy a headset with a couple of OLED displays and some speakers in it. I mean, it, like the Quest 2 is more or less a mid-range Android phone that you strap to your face. Like it's, it from a component perspective, the thing is 
complete. AR is really far away from that, right? Like the first problem is getting glasses on your face and no one has come anywhere close to that in a, in a mass market way. Do you see that problem getting solved soon? VR is definitely an easier technology to solve, you know, for the for obvious reasons. Uh, you know, putting the video screens in front of your face is a much easier technological feat to pull off than having pass-through glasses where you see the world and you add information to that. Having said that, you know, I had our latest prototypes of the glasses we're working on. I had them on my face this morning, was trying them out. We had a whole bunch of people in the office who were working on that project, testing out various things with our version of these glasses yesterday. That's a, a reference design that we're building together with Qualcomm. Tons of progress is being made, you know, even between what you would see publicly with a Magic Leap or a HoloLens 2, you know, from a couple of years ago to where we are now. Huge strides in miniaturization and the optics and the brightness, getting closer to a not horribly geeky looking device, <laughs> extrapolating forward by a year or two, like we are going to get there. There's no question it's harder, but there are massive investments being made across the industry. Some of those in closed ecosystems, like large tech companies who are doing it in a very closed way over in China with you know the ODMs of the world, like they're investing in this stuff, trying to get good at making these things. Lots of people working on optics. Uh, that are happy to provide those to multiple, you know, different companies. So there's an open-ish, not open in the sense of open source, but there's an ecosystem of of uh, supply chain uh, people working on this out there, investing tons of money. So we are going to get there. I think we're a handful of years away, and I think we'll see devices that are, you know, maybe good for gaming, but not an all-day kind of device first, you know, before we mm-hmm. get to the sort of, you know, Ray-Bans that just look exactly like ordinary glasses. You know, that's even further afield. But we think there's a, it'll be fun to play in the early days when these things aren't quite the all-day device, but are going to be good for games. You know, looking at the evolution of technology, you know, we had Pong before we had the IBM PC. We had the game, <laughs> we had the game Boy before we had the iPhone. Like, you know, as these things, as the tech gets invented, it's, um, I think games are often the way that we're first introduced to it, and then it matures over time. Even on the VR side, right? It was a bunch of games first, and now it's like you can be in a conference room in a VR headset. And it's like, well, that's the end state of this? I don't don't know about that. Um, Let's talk about that tech. So there's a pretty deep relationship between hardware capabilities and software applications here, right? Like, to put in a very simple framework, you would not try to develop the Uber app if the LCD display didn't work and you could hold the phone in your hand. Like if you had a CRT iPhone, you would not be, like it just like wouldn't exist. Uh-huh. And right now the display technology for AR stuff, some of it's shipping, it's like mostly waveguides, which refract light into your eyes in different ways, but it's not there yet. Are you investing in that piece of the puzzle, or are you just assuming that's going to happen and you're focused on the software? Well, the purpose of our reference design work is to uh, pull together the best of what's out there. In some cases, make some investments. We've made a couple of small investments in optics companies. Uh, One of those is public, a company called Digilens, which is a a different technique for creating waveguides, which is to apply a substrate on top of glass or plastic and then to shape that using a process that's a little bit like photolithography. So that's an easier way to make a waveguide than to actually etch the glass itself. It's a lot cheaper. Very interesting to us from that point of view to get to a, to the right price point. We have an investment in another company that's innovating in a different type of waveguide that's brighter, a wider field of view. So we're kind of nudging that forward. But the biggest way that we're nudging that forward is by pulling this stuff together into a reference design with the compute, the optics, the software, and trying to push the envelope for a device that can be used outdoors. You know, a mm-hmm. lot of what other people have been focused on, if you look at a Magic Lens or even a HoloLens, uh, sorry, Magic Leap or HoloLens, <laughs> let's merge those two together. Those are really indoor devices, you know, and maybe another big uh, Silicon Valley tech company is maybe going to do an AR thing this year. Maybe that's going to be more of an indoor-oriented thing than an outdoor-oriented thing. So we're, we're really trying to, you know, based on the interest that I explained earlier about connecting people to the world and moving and, and being active with other people in the world, we're really trying to push the envelope on the, you know, to pull the tech together for outdoor types yeah. of devices. But I think, you know, we see progress in all aspects of the components, the compute that's needed to drive this, the way that you're managing that. Um, people have been talking about there's things like wirelessly connected 
compute device that's separate from the glasses. So you pull a lot of the mass and heat off of the unit that's going on your head and put it into a phone or a puck. That's a that's a going to be an interesting step forward. Um, yeah, I mean these are these are like big challenges, right? You need a battery that lasts all day. Battery technology is kind of stagnant. You need a processing capability to take in all the camera input and then display something. And then you need a display technology. Yeah. And yeah, yeah. I think each of those, maybe the processing side of it is farthest along, like collect input and produce output. Like we're reasonably good at that on, on mobile devices. But the display and the battery, like they seem like huge blockers to the glasses to me. And I, I think my real question is just, it's honestly more on the display side. Like every one of these products has bet on one type of display technology. And the first time you showed me a smartphone, I could have told you, man, you should invest in some like LCD companies mm -hmm. because these screens are going to be really important to all of us one day. I don't know that right now I would make that same bet on the types of display technologies I'm seeing in AR products. Well, I think there's good stuff out there. Again, you know, there's stuff in our prototype device, reference design device that's pretty good. Mm -hmm. It's very bright. It's legible outside. It's good field of view. It's really a question of just uh, evolving that. I don't think that yeah. radical new inventions required to get to the optics that we need for good AR. It's just a few more turns of the crank uh, in terms of the process. And look, I mean, looking back through the history of technology, you know, looking back to Alan Kay's vision of the Dynabook, you know, in the early 1970s, you know, it took a while for that to become reality in the form of the laptops that we all carry around. Similar story with personal computing, similar story with early bad dial-up internet and sort of the broadband world that we live in now. I listened to your great interview around the Handspring documentary that uh, has been produced very recently. You know, another good example of lots of iteration around smartphones before we really got to the final formula that took off with consumers. So it's a history of technology for there to be iteration, for there to be versions of things that don't quite get there for consumers before the the final thing clicks. And that's where we are with, with AR. But, you know, looking back, the last 50 years of tech, I see a similar pattern, and I think that we are going to get to the finish line. I'm very, I'm very excited about it. Uh, computing that's less, it's just, it, the opportunity there is to be less intrusive. Carrying a phone around in your pocket, managing that, it takes one of your hands away from, we're <laughs> juggling the coffee, we're juggling the bags, the kids, the stroller, like, we've all kind of learned how to do that now, but it's not really ideal, you know? Uh, I don't think that that represents the endpoint for the evolution of, like, personal, you know, personal technology. It's a way station along the way. It's pretty good, but I think we can do better. And that's you know, that's what this is all about. By the way, that documentary is called Springboard, and it's great. It's on YouTube now. You should all go watch it. My colleague Dieter Bone did a great job with it. And I assure you, he's very tired of thinking about 90 cell phones. <laughs> so that was the hardware side. We're going to take a quick break. When we come back, we're going to talk about the software that enables the metaverse. This episode is brought to you by Shopify. Forget the frustration of picking commerce platforms when you switch your business to Shopify, the global commerce platform that supercharges your selling wherever you sell. With Shopify, you'll harness the same intuitive features, trusted apps, and powerful analytics used by the world's leading brands. Sign up today for your $1 per month trial period at shopify.com slash tech, all lowercase. That's shopify.com slash tech. Hey, it's Tom Warren, Senior Editor at The Verge here. Microsoft is in an era-defining moment. It's betting on AI as the future of work, its Xbox business is going through transformational changes, and the Mac versus PC war is about to be back on. So I'm launching a newsletter called Notepad. It'll be your inside guide to all those changes and beyond. From details on the next Xbox to that one time every Microsoft employee named Michael appeared on a mysterious email list. Whatever is happening at Microsoft, you'll be able to read about it first in Notepad every Thursday. Go subscribe now at theverge.com slash notepad. We're back. Let's talk about the, the software side of things. I feel like you mentioned the other big Silicon Valley tech company that might be doing something. Apple has spent years doing AR demos on stages. It's always a person holding an iPad and showing you like a train going around a table. And then they, they literally ship AR sensors in their phones now. 
the only successful mass market AR application I can think of is Pokemon Go, right? That has endured, that has revenue associated with it, that is still compelling to players. Everything else is kind of a tech demo. It's kind of looking at a couch in your living room, and that's the end of that experience, and you're, you're done with it. What is the next set of compelling AR applications with the, the hardware we have today, do you think? Is, is it still just games? Well, I think that you have to question, like, what is AR? And break that apart, that acronym apart, augmented reality. Pokemon Go is an augmented reality game uh, because Pokemon are made to exist out in the world. And that's about mapping the world, understanding, like, habitats where Pokemon could conceivably exist in, creating infrastructure so that alternate reality is shared amongst everybody who's playing the game so that if I see that Snorlax in the park, you'll see the Snorlax in the park and so on. So it's about adding things, creatures, information to the physical world, not just the screen technology that sometimes I think we associate with the the phrase AR, that sort of hologram on the screen. And so, you know, Apple and other tech companies, I think, have done a good job of that very specific aspect of AR. But the concept is broader than that. It's about this notion of spatial computing. It's about knowing where you are in the world, turning the physical world into something that has information attached to it or interfaces attached to it. That is where the real power of AR comes into play. And it doesn't, by the way, necessarily have to involve a screen. Like if you are um, hearing about it through your earphones or you're getting information about it on your watch, but it's about the place that you are, the thing that you're looking at, the thing that you want to interact with, that is very much augmented reality in the sense that I'm talking about it. Um, We are visual creatures, so I do think the visual aspects of AR are are important. I think ultimately that probably a visual form of AR will be the one that we ultimately prefer because we just like to look at stuff (laughs) generally. But I think, you know, I would just contrast that sort of way of thinking about what AR is from maybe what we would see on in some of the demos that people would do on stage to show off the latest sort of in-phone camera and AR visual computing. It's just a, a fraction. So you asked, what are the next big successful apps that we're going to see. Our big bet is on things that make the world come alive, make the world become useful, make the world become connected, connecting the atoms and the bits, connecting all the physical stuff in the world with the digital things that can help you know more about it or help you interact with it. And so to do that, you know, the the big linchpin there is not the visual part of AR, you know, in the sense of just overlaying a hologram into the scene. It's knowing where you are in the world and where your gaze is directed, you know, precisely. You know, we can get an approximate location from GPS. You can get a really bad orientation from the compass that you have on your phone device. But they're off by, you know, 10 meters, you know, in a GPS. If you're in an urban situation, possibly even more, the compass gets really confused. It doesn't. If you've ever had that experience of coming out of a subway station and trying mm-hmm. to orient yourself, it's like, where I'm going down the wrong street. You walk a block before you realize <laughs> you're going in the wrong direction. So there's a visual map. There's an AR map that lets a camera know exactly what it's looking at in the world so that then you can... Put up. You can make the Pokemon hide behind the park bench, or you can provide the information about the public artwork or the menu or the airport check-in that I described earlier. So we are building that map. We're building it in a collaborative way with people who are who play our games and contribute map data. But that is the, a key enabler. And when you ask, like, well, what's Niantic doing to sort of make this AR future happen? How does your contribution play in relative to what, you know, an Apple's doing or Microsoft or Google, like we're really focused on that UGC collaboratively built map, because I do think it's critical to unlocking thousands, millions of really amazing AR apps that are in some cases an evolution of stuff that we do on our phone today, just better versions of stuff that we do on our phones. It makes it easier. It's more directly connected to the thing that we want to know about or learn about or interact with, but probably completely new things that we haven't even imagined yet will be built you know, from that starting point. You've got millions of people playing Ingress and Pokemon Go, and they're creating map data for you. Is that the heart of the, the platform that you're going to let other developers use? Is that collaboratively generated map? It's a key part of it. You know, we talk about the platform Lightship as being mapping, and there's a real-time mapping aspect to that in terms of understanding the topology of your environment, like where the park bench and tree is, the table, the chairs, all that stuff is, so that you can put a hologram into that environment and have it 
scurry around on the ground, but not walk through objects or walk through people, you know? So that's something the platform provides. You know, you see a lot of early AR and bad AR where kind of the holograms are oblivious to all the real stuff that exists in the world. So that's a problem that we solve. There's another piece of what the platform does, which we talk about generally is understanding. So that's computer vision that knows what those pixels are. So it knows that that is water or pavement or grass or sky or any number of other categories. So again, you can situate your AR objects into that environment in a way that makes sense. If you you know want to place something that really belongs in the water or really belongs on grass or should be walking along the sidewalk or belongs up in the sky, then that semantic information is joined with the map information so that you can start to create these really advanced and intelligent forms of AR. The third thing that we're helping developers solve is sharing of that, so a multiplayer environment. So, you know, a lot of AR apps, again, are like, you look through the thing, you see what's there, but nobody else sees it. Maybe you sort of share your phone with them. But what we provide is the client-server data infrastructure and the computer vision infrastructure so that we can put that hologram into the room and, you know, Many people can walk up to it and all see it, interact with it. We can all see it change. If I push or pull on a virtual object that's a Zelda-style puzzle, then we would all be able to manipulate it together and see the same thing. That's what's in Lightship today. The mapping part is something we're working on and that we uh, have said that we'll launch to our Lightship developers next year. So we're kind of like moving up my stack of questions and like the technology stack of the product itself. So you got to start with, will the battery last all day? What will the display be like? Are the processors fast enough to detect the water and do the computer vision and spit something out semantically while not draining that battery too fast? That's the hardware layer. Then it's like the software platform needs to have a great map that's generated either by users and games or an army of robot cars or whatever it is that other companies are going to do. And then you kind of get to the last big problem, which is, okay, we've built the tools to augment reality. Who is going to augment reality? And how do we, like, Pokemon Go does not have an inbuilt misinformation problem. I'm assuming it doesn't. Like, there's not a lot of, like, (laughs) deep divisiveness about Snorlax. (laughs) But you have rules on that platform, right? Like, you don't let players play in cemeteries. There's all kinds of boundaries on what players in that game are, are able to do and not able to do because it's a game and you can set rules. When you're looking at the United States Capitol building, How do you make sure that that information is appropriate? Is that something you're thinking about? Yes. I think about related challenges as well. Like we think about, yes, we're building the tools in the platform today to let people augment the world. People are beginning to do that. Other companies are building platforms to also allow people to augment the world. These platforms will become the basis for the next generation of computing devices that we all use all day long, every day. And there's a fork in the road here, whether we propagate the patterns that exist today with our devices and the companies that operate the services that we rely on, that log us in, that service ads, that track many things that we do <laughs> in ways that, frankly, I find a little unnerving, that control app stores and you know all that, right? So... As we move from phones to uh, wearable tech, I think it gets a little even more serious because you've got devices on your body that can measure your heartbeat, that can measure whether your pupils are dilated or not, that knows where you're actually what you're looking at and can tie all that together. And you, you think about that. You're out in the world, you see something, you react to it, you see a person, you react to it, you see an ad, you see a product. You physiologically respond. You don't click on anything. You don't type anything in, but yet you've given something away, right? Mm-hmm. Um, I think we have to think really seriously about what the rules are going to be around ownership of data and privacy and really what we want that world to be like. So we are really making a pitch to developers to say we can be part of building a world that we want to live in or we can sort of let stuff happen, you know, based on what's happened over the past 10 to 15 years. I think people are interested in putting their time and energy towards something that's going to address some of the flaws that we see in the way that things have evolved. Not necessarily because companies are trying to do bad things, but it's just gotten to that point where there are some problems. I think we have to acknowledge that and think about a different way to do things. You asked about something that's a little bit different than that, and that is this notion of like, well, what can exist in the world and who decides what can exist in the world? I actually have an opinion about that. It's maybe, maybe it's controversial, maybe it's not, but 
I do think that there's a great benefit for people to be able to share things. You know, I've said that if, if I'm the only person that can see something, then you might think I'm crazy. You know, I'm a lunatic. But if we're all seeing it, that's, that's kind of the way our vision and our society work today. It's like we, we have consensus <laughs> reality. Like we all agree that this is what it is. Um, so sharing is good, but I also believe that people should have personal choice. I mean, we, we don't dictate what um, music you can listen to as you're walking down the street. We don't dictate what podcast you can listen to when you're standing in front of the Capitol building. It's Decoder. Uh, you can only listen to Decoder. In front of the, <laughs> only, only it's decoder. a new law that just passed. So I think AR is, um, I really put it into that domain. I think people should be able to theme the world in, a, you know, however they choose to theme the world. If I want to see a world that looks a little bit more like Nintendo everywhere and it's bright and happy and has uh, Mario's popping up and, you know, from mm-hmm. behind park benches, like, it should, I think that should be my choice. Um, I don't think that somebody should assert some right to control what's happening on my body and in my eyes or ears or whatever that's adding information to to that as I walk around. Um, I mean, that would be a weird kind of censorship. Just think about it in terms of tapping on a virtual object and getting data about it. Like, do you want, I mean, I can look it up on Google today. I can look it up on the internet. If I, if I touch something in the real world or look at something in the real world and I want to learn about it, I should have access to all the choices that I have today about, uh, about that. Um, yeah, so. I just, but let me push, I, I think that... Mario's jumping out of cars is one example, but it's it's a inherently sort of safe example, right? Like there's just someone next to you hallucinating. Fine. Like <laughs> but you are standing next to me and we're both looking at the Capitol building and what I see is this is the home of democracy and I'm not saying you would see this, but what you would see is this is where the election was stolen from Donald Trump has like drastic implications for a lot of things, right? And maybe that's fine, but it does mean that there's already a break between shared reality in this country, in this world, and now people can fully inhabit different realities. Seems It seems like we should think about that early when we're still worried about, what, will the batteries last long enough, as opposed to later when we're like, oh, we might have to impose a regime that looks like informational censorship or experiential censorship. You know, I mean, again... I- you could listen to a different podcast. You could listen to a different radio station while you're there. I think the answer to the problem you're describing, which is this fragmentation of society, which I think is real. I think, and I think the sort of info bubble problem is real. And I think there's some really bad consequences of that that we're suffering through and we have to mend. But I don't think the answer to that is about controlling what AR hologram that you can see. I think it's mm-hmm. about drawing people out into the world where you can meet your neighbors, drawing people out into the world where you're spending time with people from different walks of life. You know, come to a Pokemon Go Fest, you'll see stockbrokers and bike messengers and grandmas and suburban soccer moms hanging out together doing a Pokemon Go raid, becoming friends and, you know, crossing those barriers, those sort of breaking out of those info bubbles and seeing people for just as people, not as categories or as labels that get attached in these, you know, hateful online forums. So what we need more of is more face-to-face human time. We need to spend time with other people and build those personal relationships. I think you get people together, generally speaking, in real life, and you see a much more kind of reasonable posture about these things. I think it's one of the reasons that Local politics kind of work, local school boards, local political gatherings, people come to it with different points of view, but generally speaking, you don't have that sort of us and them kind of painting the other side as this sort of horrible evil. Uh, You have people debating things, arguing things, but ultimately coming together in a civil way. Um, I do think- But that right now, we are mm -hmm. seeing school board politics in America get torn to shreds by social media, by misinformation. Exactly. Yes. By these online virtual information bubbles that get people all worked up and fired up about a certain point of view. And they bring that into the physical context. But I think the physical side of that, where it's bubbling over into, is is the way to diffuse it. More of that will actually reduce the, that level of sort of vitriol and and seeing, you know, other people as as enemies rather than people maybe just have a different point of view about something. We have to deal with it, 100%. I get your point. But I do think spending time together is the way to get there. Um, and spending less time immersed in these 
in a purely electronic mediated thing. I don't know if you've seen this in your work, but you know, I think Slack and online chat, you know, versus a physical meeting between people, you know, even in a work context is just things are much more likely to go off the rail when they're yeah. electronically. Oh, I, rem- I, I remind our team that it is incredibly easy to be a jerk on Slack and you should just make a phone call. <laughs> well, there, there you go. Uh, and I, that's it's as much of a reminder to me as anyone, honestly. I'm going to keep pushing on this a little bit, but not necessarily about misinformation, just about fragmentation. Do you see interoperability between the products you're building and Apple is building and Google is building and, and Meta is building? Do you see a way for those things to be interoperable or a way for them to connect to a consensus reality of some kind? Or do you think we're all just going to pick and choose in the marketplace? The marketplace um, of realities, which is a phrase I, I just it, coined. <laughs> TM. Yeah. Um, <laughs> There's a couple of points that you're making there. One is about interoperability. And I do think that, look, in the early days of the internet was all about distributed compute, distributed systems interoperating around open standards. And it was a marvelous, wonderful thing, right? It's what took us from the world of AOL and CompuServe and sort of these walled gardens out into a world where you could have many, many people creating and publishing and you know, organizations like yours get created and the whole businesses get built, you know, because of that. Over time, we have become much more centralized in how the internet operates. And so some of the original ideals of the internet have fallen by the wayside as we've gone back to a more centralized model for all of the services that you get, you know, coming from a single company wrapped in, you know, in a single set infrastructure that's not really part of the open internet. And I, I think that the pendulum is due to swing back a bit in the other direction because of some of the problems that I alluded to earlier around, for example, you know, somebody knowing all of the information about you and everything that you do because it's all flowing through one centralized thing versus you having more control over that. And so I think the world is ready to go back to a more decentralized one, which is would be built around interoperability. So when we talk about the real world metaverse, which is the version of the metaverse I'd like to see created, I do see it as one where products and services from multiple companies would interoperate. And, you know, I think you see that theme coming through in the Web3 kind of movement Mm -hmm. and, you know, where sort of the Web3 maximalists are kind of coming from. But I think that is that sort of desire to pull back from centralized control by a few companies to a more open system that puts more control in the hands of the consumer and does rely more on interoperability at its core. Now, the second point that you raised, again, you're, you know, was going back to this notion of, are we going to see different things? And is there gonna be a marketplace of choices for us? And I do, I think that, yes, I think that we should be able to share those experiences. I should be able to poke you on the shoulder and say, hey, join me in the Pokemon world here for a few minutes, you know, in the park and let's have that experience together. And then you might, you know, drift back to the William Gibson, you know, world <laughs> that you, that, that's sort of adding elements to your reality. I think we should have the freedom to do that. I don't think that we're going to break humanity by allowing people to have some choice there. Do you think your applications are going to run on everyone else's glasses? There are deep politics and business considerations to running applications on phones today. Do you think those are getting it better or worse? Do you think there's more competition coming for glasses? I think the devices that we use to access stuff are really there because we want the stuff. Like we we want the service, we want the experience, we want the podcast, we want the app. The, app. the best creators are going to create for the biggest possible audience. That is, you know, just the laws of economics there. You don't want to pour all of your effort and precious time, and if it's a company, it's precious capital, into something that has a, a limited audience versus one that can have the broadest possible audience. And so that's why you have in the world of phones, like generally the most successful apps and experiences are compatible with both Android and iOS. And I would argue if there were a third or fourth popular operating system out there that that had traction, then content creators would also be trying to access those other platforms. So uh, we, for the games and other apps that we build, like we want that to run everywhere. And we think consumers are gonna want those popular applications on the devices that they use. So there may be some friction introduced by Policies of people making devices that, you know, maybe it makes it harder, but I think ultimately what consumers want is the great, great apps and experiences. And that means that, yeah, I think we'll be able ultimately to offer our our experiences everywhere. Have you started to have some of those conversations or is that 
Is that too far afield? Um, sure. We have business relationships and uh, business development relationships with most of the major players in the space. You know, we spend a lot of money with with Google, you know, on infrastructure. <laughs> we have, uh, uh, you know, obviously very popular applications that make a lot of money in the app stores for Apple and for Google. So a lot of money is generated by our apps flows to those companies today. We've done some public stuff with uh, with Microsoft around HoloLens. So, um, yeah, we're friendly with other people who are playing in this space. I think a world that's interoperable is the right one from a consumer point of view. You know, it's business and people have their own interests. But I, I do think there's sort of a mega trend that's going to pull us a, a bit more in that direction. You mentioned Web3. One of the, I don't know if you'd call it a killer application for cryptography, but one of the most popular applications that I hear about for crypto products is NFTs and how NFTs will let you bring virtual goods from one digital experience to another. Are you, are you bought in on this? Do you own any NFTs? Are you, are you like in the game? (laughs) Um, I've only dabbled. Uh, I'm not deep into NFT ownership as sort of an investment. And I think it's really interesting. Obviously one of the earliest Precursors to what we think of as NFTs today were CryptoKitties, which is kind of a game, a collectible. And I think the idea of taking your objects with you, your stuff with you, as you move between experiences is sort of key to this interoperable future real-world metaverse that we've talked about. So I'm with it in spirit. In reality today, there are some challenges, right? Crypto is not very ecologically friendly if it's a proof-of-work-based system, as Ethereum is today, although it's, you know, uh, evolving to proof-of-stake, supposedly, in the future. It will forever be evolving. (laughs) Um, So maybe you get around that. Consumers handling wallets today and all that is very non-mainstream, you know, Mm -hmm. in its current incarnation. So I would predict that we will get to a version of that, which is something that people use to have portability of virtual digital objects and that those will be economically traded. And I, I believe in that future. I think we're really early in it right now. I mean, just besides all the stuff about wallets and climate impact and energy use and gas fees, there's kind of just a basic game design element here, right? Like I buy a sword in your game to move it to someone else's game. They have got to have coded the sword into their game engine along with its physics, like, is that a surmountable challenge or is that just, we're, we're all dreaming and the reality is going to come crashing down on us? <laughs> I mean, it's software. It's all theoretically surmountable. I do think people tend to gloss over, uh, you know, all the things that you just described. Like, uh, you know, an NFT today is, uh, you know, a few bytes, maybe a pixelated image is encoded on the blockchain. Otherwise, it's a pointer to a file somewhere. That doesn't necessarily mean that that, the file, you know, if it's a JPEG image, that doesn't give you a 3D sword with attributes and capabilities that you can take from one game to the next, you know. And the way that that is programmed today is unique in every single game. So portability there requires either a lot of work to um, recreate assets, you know, for every single environment that they're going to be used in and behaviors for every single environment they're going to be used in and animation systems for every single environment they're going to be used in (laughs) and people agreeing on the rules. Like you're a super rare sword. Like if you bring that to my game, like what does it do in my game? Does it allow you to win the game with a single sword stroke? Like that would make my game kind of not fun. So who decides what it actually does in different environments is, you know, nobody's really solved that. So you know, some things are easier than others if it's about bringing your avatar with you or a cool pair of shoes for your avatar that you bought or a virtual pet or something like that. Like, you know, you can imagine things that are easier from a conceptual point of view to, to bring around with you than things that are going to have a deep impact on gameplay. So we'll probably start with things like that, you know. You're going to start with clothes and dances. No. Well, I just think that's easier. Yeah. 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 The killer app for AR in my head. I'm horrible at faces and names. If you sold me a pair of glasses that would just tell me the names of people I've met before, I would pay you almost any amount of money. And then I would like immediately become the president of the United States. I'd become the most powerful and charming (laughs) human being to ever exist. I cannot envision how you would build that product, which does seem like the killer app brings us all together. How do you build that product without building a worldwide facial recognition database? 
Uh, I, I mean, I think the product you described is a worldwide facial recognition database. So I don't think that you can build that product <laughs> without doing okay. that. I think the real question is, is that product going to get built? And is there some way to safeguard it so that it's not abusive, that it's helpful? And I don't know. I've heard you describe that product before. And frankly, in the earliest days of, you know, when I, when I first saw a Google Glass, you know, it, it felt like something that you'd want. I'm also bad with people's names, as people around <laughs> me will attest to. Seems like it would be incredibly useful for a lot of people, a lot of social situations. But yeah, I mean, there's a very controversial company out there right now that's built a very, you know, widely applicable facial recognition database. Not sure what's going to become of that. I do think there's a high creepiness factor to having that sort of data out there. There's a high abuse factor, potentially. If you read, you know, Cyberpunk, William Gibson, et cetera, like they imagine a future where, you know, such technologies are ubiquitous and people have face masks that they wear and other things that they wear to confuse those systems. So... I don't know if we're headed for that or not. Um, I'd like to believe there's some way to engineer that in some distributed, safeguarded, opt-in way that would protect the privacy of uh, people involved. But I don't know. I don't know. Yeah. What's next for Niantic? What's what's the next big project we should be looking for? Uh, the next big project, we'll check out Pikmin Bloom if you haven't. It will make your daily walk a, a lot more fun. We have a ton of, of cool games coming next year. So if you keep your eyes on Niantic, you will see some really awesome stuff next year. From a tech point of view, incredibly excited about making this map work and the apps that that is going to open up, not only for us, but for people in the developer community. So I think probably 2022 for us is going to be about that and about what devs start doing with that in terms of lighting the world up with real AR that's anchored in the world that makes the world more interesting and useful and uh, and entertaining. That's great. John, thank you so much for coming to Cutter. It's been an absolute pleasure. Enjoyed it, Neelai. Thank you. Thanks again to John Hankey for taking the time to talk today. Thank you for listening. I hope you enjoyed it. As always, I'd love to hear what you think of Decoder. You can email us at decoder at theverge.com. You can tweet at me directly. I'm at Reckless on Twitter. If you like the show, please share it with your friends and subscribe wherever you get your podcasts. If you really like the show, leave us that five-star review. Decoder is a production of The Verge and part of the Vox Media Podcast Network. Today's episode was produced by Creighton DeSimone and Jackie McDermott with research by Liz Leon. It was edited by Callie Wright. The Decoder music is by Breakmaster Cylinder. Our senior audio director is Andrew Marino and our executive producer is Eleanor Donovan. We'll see you next time. More to-dos, less time, and an infinite number of tools to keep track of. Sometimes doing business has never felt harder, but you don't need a miracle to hit your goals. You can just use HubSpot because their all-in-one customer platform can make growing your business infinitely easier. Imagine this, high-quality leads, fast-closing deals, wildly happy customers, and more benchmark-breaking quarters. It's not a miracle, it's HubSpot. Visit HubSpot.com to get started today.